you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nitophatites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachur, son of Asaph, and the relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them, At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people, on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Maseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Azer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that, that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Well, good morning. Sit down here, please grab yourselves a seat. 
If you are new or visiting, my name's Nick, uh, and I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church, and today the joy of unpacking the Scriptures with you. Big shout out to anyone who's tuning in online. We love you and miss you and hope you are doing well. Uh, but today we come to our penultimate episode in our Rebuild series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you're not there yet, please do join me in Nehemiah 11, and we're going to cover both 11 and 12 today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray together. God Almighty, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity now to open it and not just read uh, words on a page, but hear from you. And so, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and open our hearts to receive what you want us to receive this morning, that we might be changed and transformed in the ways you want, that we might walk out of here more and more like the people you're calling us to be following you more faithfully, trusting you more wholeheartedly. May your word do that and not return void or empty this morning, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, let's start this morning with a question for reflection. When was the last time you can remember feeling a a palpable sense of joy? When was the last time you uh, can remember just kind of Uh, breathing in excitement and anticipation for something or perhaps breathing out a sense of gratitude and thanks about achievement or satisfaction. Uh, As Lily mentioned, many of you will know, uh, my family came back last week on Saturday from uh, a road trip up north for our winter holiday break. And there are a few highlights. Uh, One was teaching my six-year-old how to drive a golf cart. Uh, I taught my three-year-old how to drive a Dodgem car. We all made it back safely and alive and well, uh, which is something positive and to be joyful about. But it reminded me of how uh, we can sometimes hold up holidays as the, uh, they are the place where we have happiness and, and joy and it takes us out and escape from the, the doldrums of our normal life. Now, thankfully, and a big thanks to you for this, but I have the blessing of having the kind of job that when I get home, I'm excited about getting back to work. So thank you. But we can sometimes live in this state of of longing for joy that's just out of reach. Now, let me ask you another question for reflection. When was the last time or how often do you feel that same sense of joy, but about Jesus or about your Christian faith or about the things of God when they come to mind or heart. See, joy and Christianity don't often come together in the modern psyche. If you type in Google right now, why are Christians so... You're not going to get joyful. You actually get judgmental to our shame. And you know, one of the most common commands in the Bible is God calling his people to be happy, to be joyful. Certainly the Bible is very realistic about uh, the heaviness of life, the darkness of life. Sometimes it it encourages uh, encourages us to to lament that and to, to grieve that. But it doesn't take away the consistent call from the Scriptures to be people of joy. Whenever God calls us in the Scriptures to praise him, what he's really saying is, hey, hey, be happy. You're one of mine. Be happy in me. He calls us to rejoice, to give thanks, 
One of the fruits of being filled with the Holy Spirit is joy. Jesus told us when he came that he came to bring life and life to the full. And it says something about God, doesn't it? That when he did come, taking on flesh, sending his son, Jesus, into the world, the first public miracle that Jesus performed was at a party, turning water into wine. In fact, this must have been such a theme of Jesus' ministry. There's another episode that's recounted for us where uh, some other guys come up to Jesus and his disciples and say, why don't you guys fast? Like, why aren't you mourning and grieving like, like we do? And Jesus says, why on earth would we do that when the bridegroom has come? In other words, if Jesus is in the building, there should be joy and rejoicing. When Jesus comes to town, there should be joy and rejoicing. And so God wants you to be full of joy. And let's be honest, you want to be full of joy. To be human is to want to be happy. Famed 17th century mathematician, philosopher, also a Christian, Blaise Pascal, he once wrote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step, but to this object, to be happy. And so everything you ever do is that you might be happy. Even if it involves short-term pain, it's for long-term joy. And so we find ourselves in a world where the God who made it, the creator of the world, is one who is full of joy. And he's calling us to be happy. And he's indeed wired us to pursue that joy, that happiness. But if you're any like me, sometimes it just seems that something doesn't seem to click. It doesn't quite feel like that in our lived experience. Well, today we come to a text where God willing, he might use it to, to bridge the gap between your lived experience, between our kind of cultural assumptions around Christianity and who God is calling us to be. In this Rebuild series, we've been tracking through the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And just to catch you up, this is a story about God's people who were in exile in Babylon and yet called to come back to God's place in Jerusalem. And they returned to their homeland, but it's in ruins. And so they need to rebuild the walls. They need to rebuild the temple. They need to rebuild the city. And yet through it all, God has been rebuilding the people themselves. And last week, if you're here, we had uh, Peter Adam unpack for us, Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. In Nehemiah 8, we see the people gathered before God's Word. The five, first five books of the Bible were read out to them. And they'd heard it for the first time for, for a long time. And it led them to repent. And so in Nehemiah chapter 9, they noticed that, that their lives, their, this kind of, the social fabric of their community didn't match what God's Word said. And so in Nehemiah, they, uh, in Nehemiah 9, they confessed their sin in repentance. And that led in Nehemiah chapter 10 to the people resolving to be different, resolving to change, resolving to get back in line with God's Word and to now walk in the ways that He intended for them. And today now we come to Nehemiah chapter 11 and we see what's next. What comes next after reading, after repenting, after resolving? Well, today we see there's a whole lot of rejoicing rejoicing. And so we're going to walk through this text and just pick up a little bit uh, from Nehemiah 11 and from Nehemiah 12 to see what we might learn for our own joy. We're going to start with Nehemiah 11, which on the surface doesn't look very joyful. 
because there's a lot of names, but it provides the foundations for our joy. So let's read the first couple of verses in Nehemiah 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so here we have the walls being rebuilt. Jerusalem seemingly is back And yet it needs some life breathed back into it. It is physically restored and yet it is a bit of a ghost town at this point because the leaders are there, but nobody else has wanted to populate the city. In Nehemiah 7, we read that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. And so life needs to be breathed back in to God's place here, God's city in Jerusalem. And it needed to be breathed back in, not just for the city's sake, but because of its significance in the world. We just read here in, in verse 1 that, that Nehemiah, uh, that, that this city, Jerusalem, is the holy city. That is, that it's God's chosen place, holy, set apart by Him, for Him, in which His presence can dwell and He can be there with His people to abide with them. And in human history, we, we, we can kind of look and study Jerusalem and see how it is somewhat of a special city. It's a, it's a fulcrum of political tension, of human activity. Jerusalem itself has been occupied for some 5,000 years. It's been destroyed twice. It's been besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. And then around the year 1000 BC, it became Israel's, God's people took over Jerusalem. Now God is transcendent and everywhere, but we know in the Scriptures He'd chosen to particularly dwell in this place as His special city. And so to see it looking like our own CBD of Melbourne in the midst of a lockdown, it just was not fitting for what this place should be on the world stage. And so they run a lottery to work out who's going to go back and populate the city. And then the rest of Nehemiah 11 and well on in to Nehemiah 12, if you've got your Bibles or your phones, you can kind of scroll up or turn the page to see there is just a whole lot of names here. And I confess that, you know, getting out of holiday mode, opening up Nehemiah 11, I thought to myself last Sunday afternoon, what on earth am I going to say? <laughs> but it's very fitting that all these names are there for us because they're not just names, they are a history. It's not just a list, but a role of honour. And these names include uh, all the people that put their hand up or or won the lottery to head back to Jerusalem, including uh, some of the priests who in prior generations had been there to populate Jerusalem. Now, if you've been to our own Shrine of Remembrance uh, near the city, you might know that in the Shrine of Remembrance are held the Books of Remembrance. Uh, as you head on in there, there are some 40 books that you'll walk past. And those books have all the names of the men and women who served through World War I. And those names are just some of the names that our culture generally, collectively, commemorate together as we say, lest we forget. We don't want to forget about them and the sacrifice and contribution they made to our society. And Nehemiah 11 is a little similar. It's a a chapter of remembrance. 
that we might not forget that there were real people in real time, in a real place who, who captured the vision of what God was doing and building in rebuilding Jerusalem. You see, this wasn't about rebuilding Jerusalem for its own sake. This was about these people's faith, the faith of God's people. About rebuilding a people that might shine out from this holy city into the world. Declaring God's goodness and grace. Shining God's light out into a world that was darkened by sin, that was distracted by worship of other gods. God needed a people to get that work underway. And Nehemiah 11 and 12 says, here are those people. Here are those people who answered the call, who saw the vision, who wanted to be a part of making God known to the world. And so they're not quite rejoicing yet. We'll we'll get to that in in the next point. What we see here is, is the foundations for their future celebration that is about to come. Because here are a list of people who who remember what the Lord has done. And the fact that Nehemiah 11 and 12 exist here is that they wanted to make note that we might remember what the Lord did in reestablishing His holy city. That He's brought them back from exile. He's been faithful to His promises. He's restored their standing in the world. He's renovated and reestablished their home. And He set them apart once again as His people and He as their God. And you know, in our own day, The foundation for Christian joy, the foundation for our joy, for your joy today can be what the Lord has done for you. You and me can have joy as the default operating system of our life when we live conscious of what the Lord has already done. There's a famous summary of the gospel in the book of 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, it starts out with, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. God has done something in real time, in real place, involving real people like you and me. And that there is a faith now that has been handed down once for all of God responding to our rejection of Him with grace and with mercy by sending His own Son, living, dying, and then rising again. God's done that in history some 2,000 years ago. And He's done that for you. You see, often we don't experience joy in our lives. We don't carry around a sense of, of gospel optimism as Christians, because the foundation of our emotional lives isn't in what the Lord has done, but in what the Lord hasn't done. Because really, we're we're, we're people who have hearts that that want other things. And so we we start to, to get down and disappointed when God isn't breaking through our circumstances to give us those things that we really want. Maybe it's a more comfortable household budget. Maybe it's a romantic partner. Maybe it's better behaved kids. But in reality, God has done far better than that. You have been loved at the cost of His own Son. You have been rescued from a permanent hell for all eternity. You've been adopted into God's own family. You know, if you ever need a a good dose of optimism 
in your life, then open up the New Testament and head to the book of Philippians, because there you will meet the Apostle Paul in all of his rejoicing best. This guy is, is beaten up in jail continually. And you get the sense that in the between the whips are being beaten in jail. He's just, he's just yelling out, I rejoice. And again, I say, I rejoice. Because in the book we read, and he's writing, writing it from jail. Essentially saying, hey, hey, I'm in jail. And yet I rejoice. I'm going to be delivered. And I rejoice. Actually, I might die. It's even better. I rejoice. Because the Apostle Paul, he doesn't weigh up Jesus based on how his life is panning out, based on his circumstances. No, he weighs up his circumstances based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. And he can rejoice, come what may, because of it. And here in Nehemiah 11, we have uh, uh, the people have now come to this point where they've slowly, over time, as the city has been rebuilt, started to grasp that God has done something similar for them. They have come around to the reality that God really is with them and for them and has indeed now restored them. This leads to the second half of Nehemiah chapter 12, where they throw a party. And so the people come finally to dedicate this wall that is now finished and being rebuilt. And we see the form of our joy. In chapter 12, verse 27, you might have noticed that our Bible reading skipped down to it. Let's read out verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And so the form that the people's joy takes is that they throw a party. They celebrate together. There's gladness, there's thanks, and as Steph said, there is a whole lot of singing. And the text goes on to tell us that there are two choirs that are formed, and they're sent in in either direction around the wall that encircles Jerusalem to essentially encircle the whole city in song. And then in verse 40, they, they meet up, and their song is combined. And it's summed up in verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now, before we move on, we should take note of what uh, Nehemiah or the author is trying to connect here, because he's trying to remind us of the beginning of Ezra, where indeed they threw a celebration. There was a joy that they'd finally come back to the city, but it was mingled and mixed with lament at the state of the city. In Ezra chapter 3, it said, The people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And here at the end of the story, in Nehemiah chapter 12, the sound is heard far away, but it's a sound of pure, unadulterated joy, because God has been faithful to do what He set out to do. And it raises for us something that we don't often stop to consider because we get perhaps so used to doing it, and that is that there is a very important place for singing in the life of the Christian, in the life of the church. We've done it already this morning, we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it next week, and the week after, and the week following. Christians sing. Why do Christians sing? There are a lot of reasons why we sing. Let me share with you quickly just three reasons why we sing. Number one is we're human, I hope. We're human. 
So we might put our singing in a church down to like, oh, that's kind of like just a religious thing that we do. You know, when you get together, you sing. Well, actually, no, it's not a religious thing. Christianity is the only religion that is so shaped by song. But more than that, it's a human thing. Have you noticed how music naturally comes out in human life, in the human experience? Just as God has wired us to pursue happiness, so God has wired us to express ourselves in song. Sometimes that's in lament, to be sure, but most often it is in celebration. If you are throwing a party, if you are celebrating a wedding, you better get the DJ right, you better get the band right, because you need to help the people express themselves and match the joy of the moment. When worshippers descend on one of the great worship centres, a footy stadium in Melbourne, what do they do? They, they go having wear, worn their, their team's colours and they go to rebuke the enemy, most often the umpires, and they wave flags like the Pentecostals. And if their teams win, they sing. It's a natural response to victory. Music is so natural to humanity that it, 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 without it, we can sometimes feel awkward. If you're in an elevator without music, it feels awkward. They just didn't kind of provide that music to keep you interested. And so God has wired us in a way that music, music expresses for us as humans, something that words and body language can't. And so we sing in church to express realities that can't just well, merely be spoken, but they're so full of deep and real meaning that they need to be sung. And that leads to number two, and that is the second reason we sing is that, that God is worthy. God is worthy of it. The Scriptures attest to the goodness and the grandeur of God, and everywhere they do in song. The longest book in the Bible is a book full of what? Songs. Many of us tell them that the earth, animals, the trees of the forest, the seas and all that are in them, that they sing to God. Jesus himself said that, hey, if you don't praise God, the rocks are going to cry out. Birds chirping, waves crashing, wind blowing. That is nature's way of lifting up a, a joyful noise to the God who created all things. And this all culminates in the end, the final picture we get of what eternity is going to look like, where everybody rescued through Jesus is going to be singing about what he's done. The Presbyterians will finally have the hands out of the pockets. The Anglicans will no longer just be humming along but singing yes and amen about the glorious realities of what God has done. And so perhaps one of the reasons we so naturally sing is not just that, that God is worthy, but also of who God is. Because did you know that, that God is himself someone who sings? There's a great passage in the Scriptures, this little book of, of Zephaniah there in the Old Testament, where because of who God is and what he's done in, in coming and coming close to his people, Zephaniah tells us that, that God is actually going to sing over his people. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So intense is God's affection for his people that he sings. Now perhaps we inclined toward a view of God as kind of a, a grumpy, pessimistic grandpa. But that is not the vision the Bible gives for us. 
God is the most happy being in the universe. His holiness, his perfection means he is infinitely and perfectly joyful. And he sings. Third, God is worthy of our praise, our worship, our song. And he calls us to sing because we are formed by singing. A couple of weeks ago, I was involved in a, a running race and in preparation for the race, I got the Apple Music out and I made a playlist to keep me going uh, throughout the race because it was going to go for about an hour and a half or over. And so as the race started, I pressed shuffle and I kind of gave up my emotional state to the algorithms of Apple Music. And it was a good choice in the end. I was grateful that I did because at certain times in the race, Certain songs came on and they were exactly what was needed at that time. The race started in darkness and the sun was rising. And as the sun was, was just coming out, a song called In the Morning Light started playing. I'm like, hey, this is, this is, this is fitting. I need to, need to focus here. I need to keep going. And as I get into the depths of the race and need to keep pushing, a song called Go Big or Go Home came on. Who knew? It's like someone was designing this behind, behind all things. And then get this, five minutes to go, Lose Yourself by Eminem comes on. <laughs> My palms were already sweaty. It was fitting. But it pushed me until the end. The music made me push. And in the New Testament, in the, the book of Colossians particularly, the Apostle Paul, he, he tells the church there, hey, you should sing to one another, sing hymns and, and psalms and spiritual songs. And to do so, in, in doing so, you, you let the Word of God form you and shape you. And that becomes the thing that sets the pace for your Christian life, your walk with Jesus. Music shapes us and forms us. The story goes that in the middle of the 20th century, one of the famous theologians of the day, Karl Barth, he was uh, lecturing at a, a Bible college. He'd written volumes and volumes of deep academic theology. And he was asked by a student to summarize his theology in a sentence, if he could. And his answer was to bring up the song that he learned as a child. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So because of music, my three-year-old has enough truth, enough knowledge about the, the deep realities of her existence and creation for a lifetime of faith and joy in Jesus. And when all of the impressiveness of our adulthood starts fading away and our minds and our bodies fail us. It'll be the words that we've sung that will echo in our hearts and our memories and our minds. Music shapes us. And so we see in this episode of Nehemiah that the main response of God's people to what God has done is to celebrate wholeheartedly, to sing loudly and passionately that's heard far away. So that should be the form of our joy. Christians should sing. We, as God's people, should gather together to sing and to sing loud. And we are going to sing in a moment. Let me encourage you to sing loud. Before we get there, let's land the plane by talking about the fuel for your joy. There's a lot of reasons for you and I to sing, even more reason than what these Israelites had as they there sung so passionately and joyfully. Because the special moment here at the dedication of the wall was for them a moment. And yet for us as Christians, this side of Jesus having come, lived, died and risen again, that special moment becomes a lifestyle. 
for us. That special moment is, is our default setting as Christians. Because we're not waiting for a dedication. There is nothing left for God to do. There is nothing more needed to be done for you to be reconciled with Him, right with Him, adopted into His family and awaiting glory in heaven. As I've said before, we are now living. You and I are living in the victory parade that follows the resurrection of Jesus. And so here in this story, that the city had been shaken. The walls were, had to be rebuilt because they had been so temporary and vulnerable. And in Christ, we have a king who is unshakable. Here in this story, there are people celebrating partly, I'm sure, out of relief that their, their doubts and their hopelessness in the promises of God have, have been relieved. And oh, actually, no, God was with us. That exile was a season. But for us, we live this side of all of God's promises, having been yes and amen in Jesus having come. Everything we wait for has been accomplished in Him. But we don't see it yet. We don't experience it 24-7, tangibly, palpably yet. I mentioned our, our holiday at the beginning, and one episode in it might be relevant here. Uh, our holiday was a road trip up north, up the coast, uh, to the Gold Coast. And on the way, Jules has some family in a place called Port Stephens. Uh, Port Stephens is a place that I'd heard about before. I'd heard about it as one of the most beautiful, beautiful places in the world. There are some 23 of Australia's best beaches all in this little port. I'd seen pictures of Port Stephens. I'd heard about Port Stephens. I'd heard about how they have almost perfect weather. And so it actually timed the time to leave here to get there. It's about 12 hours. So that we could get there and still have time to see it. And to see the beauty and the glory before recovering from the long drive. And so I was pumped for driving to Port Stephens. Unfortunately, it turned out we had one too many Maccas stops and we didn't make it until it was dark. And so we, we're driving into this place I'd heard all about. This place of, of anticipation. This place of, of beauty, of, of glory, if you will. And it was dark. And I couldn't see it. And I couldn't experience it. And I had to wait till the next morning, till the sun had risen, and I could see it in all its glory. And you know, driving on in there to Port Stephens, none of my, nothing about my experience that evening changed anything about the reality of its beauty. The beaches were still there. The beauty was still there. It was just under the cover of darkness. And the Christian life is a little bit like that experience. The Christian life is, is walking by faith and not by sight. We have joy. We have joy by faith. As we look forward to the morning, light coming. And so we live our life today knowing some incredible realities. And yet some that are yet to be uncovered as the darkness of this world lifts and God himself becomes our light. There are some things that we know. And let me remind you of those things. You know that in eternity past, God purposed to create you, to form you and fashion you. And he knows every single one of the steps of your life. He created you in his image with value, with dignity, with worth, with meaning and with purpose. And he gave you a heart that you could know God. And so you can rejoice. Do you know that even in the reality, all of us have 
with our hearts turned away from God and rejected God and run another way. We've all taken our own creation, our being created as a license to sit upon the throne of our lives and yet the supreme and sovereign God of the universe who would have been well within his rights to smoke us out of existence instead has loved us with an everlasting love. Has instead given up his own son in death for us, coming to take our place. He's done that for you. So you can rejoice. We could think about the debt that you and I accrued in the ways that we have lived our lives apart from Him, the ways that we have plans today and this week, and we haven't run them by Him or even given a thought to what He would think about them. And we have enough debt to weigh us down, even weigh us down into hell. And yet God has come to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to give us His own righteousness. So you can rejoice. We could think about the, the dirt that we had soiled ourselves with based on the mess that we'd made with our lives because of our sin. And yet God has come close to us, run out to us like the father to the prodigal son to embrace us, to cleanse us, to purify us and to bring us into his house. Because of that, you can rejoice. And while we'd cut ourselves off from him and we'd metaphorically or sometimes really giving him the finger running our own way. Instead, God came for us to embrace us, to clothe us, to welcome us, to call us his son and his daughter so we can rejoice. And even now as we, we attempt and our hearts are so prone to wander away from him, where we sometimes choose folly over wisdom and we choose ugliness over beauty and fear over faith, God sustains us. And he says he's never going to let us go. He's never going to forsake us. And more than that, he's now gifted you and he's empowered you to start living how you were made to live. And he's slowly transforming you to be the person that he's created you to be. So you can rejoice in that. And the sin that lingers and the consequences of that sin the stains of which might remain. God has promised that there is coming a day where one day all of that will be put away, all of that will be forgotten. There'll be no more room for tears, nor pain, nor fear anymore. And you're going to meet God face to face. And you're going to be so glorified in His presence that it's going to be pure, unadulterated joy making a sound heard far, far away. And in those moments, you'll only be able to rejoice. And so as Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, in all these things, 
You are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is going to be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we can be a people who rejoice. We can be a people who sing and who sing aloud. We can be a people whose default setting is one of joy as we think about what the Lord has done for us. And so let's stand together now and we're going to sing. God Almighty, we praise you that we have a lot of reasons to sing, a lot of reasons for joy, that you have done more than we could ever ask or imagine from creation all the way down through to glorification. You have brought us to yourself and you've done it all in Jesus. And so, Lord, make us a people whose hearts are filled with joy in Jesus. Joy, not in what we have accomplished, not in what we are are doing, but in what you have done for us in him. Lord, I pray that you might help us be a people who exude joy. Help us be a people who sing out with joy. Help us be a church that shines with joy because we are so defined and standing upon who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, we put away, we repent of the ways that we distract ourselves from the joy that you offer us by focusing on our own failures, focusing on our own plans. Lord, we pray that you might fill us afresh and make us so heavenly minded that we would be full of joy here on earth. Bless us, we pray. And Lord, even now, encourage our vocal cords as we prepare to sing loud. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.